Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Please consider supporting Black Women United YEG for the protection and advancement of black women and girls in Alberta. You can learn more about them at bwunited.ca. Uh, they are always looking for donations and volunteers. So please, again, support Black Women United, Y-E-G, for the protection and advancement of black women and girls in Alberta. Again, that website is bwunited.ca. Creative control, creative control. Comedy, art, and sometimes rock and roll. Let's do a public opinion poll. Raise your hand if you love creative control. Cause when Vish is unleashed, well you... Oh, sorry, I didn't see you there. I was just working on a tribute song to my favorite podcast, Creative Control with Vish Khanna. My name is Matthias, and I play in a band called The Burning Hell. But more importantly, I support Creative Control on Patreon, and I think you should too. Quality long-form arts journalism is like a magical talking unicorn. It definitely exists, but it can be really hard to find. Fortunately for us, Vish makes it easy with hundreds of funny, thought-provoking, well-researched and engaging interviews with artists from all over the world. Your flexible monthly donation on Patreon will get you plenty of special exclusive treats and help Vish keep his podcast well-fed and cared for properly the way a magical unicorn deserves. To make your flexible monthly donation to Creative Control, please visit patreon.com slash creativecontrol today. Creative Control with Vish Khanna. Mark Masters is a respected music journalist who is currently based in the state of Arizona. An active presence over the past two decades, Masters has written for a host of publications, including The Washington Post, NPR, Pitchfork, The Village Voice, Wire, Bandcamp Daily, and The Washington City Paper, among others. His first book, No Wave, covered the history of that genre and was published in 2007, and he started and still hosts the Music Book Podcast. His latest work is a fascinating music book of his own called High Bias, the Distorted History of the Cassette Tape, which was published by the University of North Carolina Press on October 3rd, 2023. 
As such, Mark and I, who've admired each other's work from afar, finally had a chance to have a talk, and we covered things like the state of physical media in a melting world, why music fans seem to fixate on old and new formats, what prompted him to explore the history and persistence of the cassette tape, its socio-political and democratizing properties, how it completely altered music listening and music making forever, how different parts of the world still revere and engage with cassette tapes, even as new technologies make it seemingly obsolete, tapers, the Grateful Dead, and Sonic Youth, how modern music portability and on-demand streaming stem from cassettes, what might be the next big thing in music mediums, book tour dates, and much more. A part of the Entertainment One Network with the support of listeners like you who follow and subscribe to this donor-driven podcast and spread the word about it and make flexible monthly donations at patreon.com slash creative control, which is the primary source of revenue. I can't thank the people who support this show on Patreon enough. Uh, If you're able to join them, please do and visit patreon.com slash creative control today. Thank you so much. Plus, in-kind support from Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, Ontario, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, Ontario. This is episode 813 of Creative Control, featuring the lovely and talented Mark Masters with your host, me, Vish Khanna. Hey, Mark, how's it going? Good. How are you doing, Vish? I'm very well. It's nice to have you on the show. Where in the world are you today? I am in Arizona in a town a little south of Phoenix called Gilbert. Oh, nice. Uh, how long have you been there? <laughs> Just a couple years, actually. I moved here in 2021. I was an East Coaster for all of my life in the D.C. area. But we decided to pick up and move out here for a bunch of different kind of nebulous reasons but we, we we've enjoyed it so far it's 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 much much hotter and there's no winter which we like so do you like that as the world gets hotter and hotter does it get particularly <laughs> hot there or is it okay it, it, it was it was over 100 yesterday 100 oh, degrees my. fahrenheit here yesterday so yeah it gets very hot but uh and and i mean in the future no i think it's probably a terrible place to live in the future but for the present <laughs> it has these really nice mild winters where we don't have to worry about rain or snow or anything so we're taking advantage of that for now good for you i mean as someone who collects uh, media i see in the background mm-hmm. there i see records uh we're going to be talking about these this the cassette tapes this wonderful okay. book of yours i can't wait to talk about it but the climate okay. The climate impacting, sometimes I look at my record collection and I've got some box sets way up high and I'm like, oh, heat rises. That's probably a mistake. Should I have my really expensive box sets up high? But then if I put them low, I don't know what to do. Anyway, do you worry about uh, your media in climate calamity uh, when it's like super hot? Yeah, no, it is. It is a concern, especially because, yeah, I, I've, of course, since we moved here, I've gotten so much more stuff that it's spilling over into the garage and I can keep it in the garage for the winter, but I have to move it all back in in the summer, <laughs> which is not a lot of fun. Um, yeah. At least we, we we don't have floods here. So I know that's never going to happen. 
right. to the to myself. So I made that trade off. But yeah, there are times when I do wonder the stuff I've got sitting up high here, uh, how hot it's getting. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever lost something to a, a flood? Any any of your collections or anything like that? I did not really a, a flood. I mean, I in in D.C. where we lived, I had my, all my office stuff was in the basement. Um, and luckily it never actually flooded. We did have one time there, there was a, a, a problem with our AC unit that was housed down there and I, and I got some water on some stuff that I'd stupidly left on the floor, uh-huh. um, which was, you know, it wasn't a lot of stuff. It could have been a lot worse, but it was still, you know, a few box sets and things. It's still, I bet those things are always traumatic. Even losing one piece of media to any kind of water is a, is a traumatic experience. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, well, it's, I mean, you know, this is why people are going intangible i guess they want less physical stuff because it yeah. takes up space it gets yeah. damaged i don't know but anyway th- again this seems like yeah. a nice enough segue uh to uh commend you on this wonderful book high bias the distorted oh, history of the cassette tape i enjoyed this immensely it brought i will say for me it mostly brought back a lot of memories i moved uh from ontario to alberta left my tape decks behind we got a new vehicle when we moved here. It does not have a cassette deck in it. So I have all my tapes. And I and I see as I want to buy stuff on Bandcamp or on people's websites, buy my cassette tape. There, You know, okay. it's interesting to see that this thing has never died. Uh, and I, I'm curious about your interest uh, to have such an interest in this phenomenon to write a book mm-hmm. uh, about tapes. So let's... Sorry, a swirl of things there. Let's get to this book. What inspired no you in particular to write uh, this particular book? Well, it's an idea it hadn't kicking around for a while, mostly because I'm in a combination of the two things you're talking about. I loved them growing up. I had a ton of them. I listened to them in my car. I listened to them on my, my double tape deck and dubbed them back and forth and things like that. So I, they always held a place for me. And I, I, ne- I got rid of some of mine over the years, but I never really kind of completely abandoned them. But then there was a double thing of of sort of what people think of as a resurgence. I mean, they never really went away. But in the last you know decade or so, a lot of the music I like on the smaller labels, those labels take advantage of the fact that it's so much cheaper and faster to make cassettes than it is to do vinyl at this point. Yeah. And it's not just that it's the convenience either. They've, they've taken advantage of like the artistic possibilities of cassettes, the way that they can be packaged, the way they can be presented, the way music sounds on them and things like that. And so that combination, I felt like it was sort of a perfect time to kind of go through the history of how this how this all came to be and sort of for people who are getting into them now who weren't there for when they came up it hopefully will be interesting for those people for people who have a lot of nostalgia for them hopefully it'll be interesting to revisit that and also to find out that they're very prominent still in a lot of a lot of ways that they might not know about by the end of the book you break down some of the sales statistics about uh you know official cassette releases blank tapes mm-hmm. you will admit mm-hmm. It is quite a dramatic drop off from like 1997, (laughs) where it's like, I can't remember all the figures, but like in the almost 100 million cassettes are sold at one point, and now it's down to tens of thousands. So there Mm -hmm. is a smaller interest in the tapes, obviously, uh, nowadays. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Okay. What do you, but, but people are still manufacturing them. And uh, particularly, Mm -hmm. like I say, artists and labels. Did this happen with vinyl as well, do you think? Where with the advent of CDs, did every like sorry. I feel like we are constantly <laughs> talking about uh the the format <laughs> of music. Just always. Right. Like it's just intrinsic yeah. <laughs> in our obsession yeah. over music is what format is the best, uh-huh. which is the purest. 
First of all, why do you think that is? Why are we always constantly like, oh, vinyl sounds better, <laughs> cassettes sound better than CDs? Uh-huh. Like constant, constant right. discussion. Why do you think that is? <laughs> That's interesting. I don't know. I mean, it's such a funny uh, combination in, in music fandom and collecting between all sorts of levels of how much do you care about the sound versus how much do you care about the music? What, but the sound and the music are, are in, you know, they are entwined. It's not like the music is this abstract thing that gets a production put on it or anything. So it, it's kind of hard to parcel those things out. Like for me, I've never really cared a ton about audio quality. Uh, and I can, I, I can sort of tell the differences, but I like the differences. You know, it doesn't necessarily bother me that one thing sounds quote better than the other. It's sort of how you define better and things like that. The obsession with formats in general, yeah, that's I, I don't know where that comes from exactly. It's, it's always an interesting thing to talk about with people because the, the major formats have enough differences that to me there's weaknesses and strengths with all of them that, that, that aren't duplicated across the line. I mean, you can pretty much pick out at least one or two unique strengths of each format that the others don't have yeah. and unique weaknesses that the others don't have. And I'm not sure if that was ever by design, you know, with the, with, with technology, with people inventing technology and industries kind of push technology. I think a lot of that is just based on what they think is going to sell mm. and what, and how they can sell records over and over again in different formats. But I think it's just been a neat, kind of byproduct of these inventions that none of them have become the thing that you're like, well, this has everything right and nothing wrong about it. They all have both of those. And I think that makes what make them, makes it fascinating to talk about the differences between all of them. I was born in 1977, so I grew up with cassette tapes. I grew up uh-huh. taping the songs I liked off of the radio. I grew up right. making myself, or, well, I did a few different things. I would go to the library and borrow the record or the CD of an album I liked right. and then dub uh-huh. it, dub it. Like I would tape it and, yeah. and I would make, mm-hmm. make my own experiences. I would put an album on one side by, if I had a Nirvana tape, it was bleach on one side, never mind on the other side, mm-hmm. whatever. And I would just walk around with these things. And, um, mm-hmm. I just never really considered the socio-cultural implications of that access point. Cause I didn't know any different. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that there was right. a time where people couldn't, you know, show affection to someone by making them a mixtape. But it's interesting in every advent of a new platform that we're like or format that we're discussing, there always seems to be Mm -hmm. some discussion of how it's democratizing music or democratizing the experience of music. Mm -hmm. And it always often seems to have a like, well, they've invented a thing and it's too expensive. None of us can afford a Walkman. It's too crazy. What is this? And then over uh-huh. time, uh-huh. it gets cheaper and cheaper and more accessible. It's just something yeah. I hadn't considered until reading your book. Do you think there's a sort of mm-hmm. sociopolitical aspect to the music format discussion we were just having that maybe we don't, we take mm-hmm. it for granted that, you know, I'm buying records now or I'm picking them up from the record store and a single record is like $39 and it makes no sense. I don't know what trip it took (laughs) to get to the store, but it's, I'm just like, this is 10 songs. Like, why is this $40? And the cassette, it's just a very strange time to follow the bouncing ball of format changes. But again, back to my question, do you feel like there's socio-political stuff here tied to each of these formats and, um, I think you do based on the explorations in your book, but is that a significant part of how we're consuming music, do you think? 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, definitely the social and the, and the social political is always hard to, to separate. So if it's their social aspects, then there's definitely political aspects to it too. I, I think the democratization is an interesting, I mean, I think there's ways to poke holes in that and say, did it really get to everybody? Did it really have, did the cassette really have access? And like you said, it was expensive first when it got cheaper. Still, there were probably people that couldn't afford it or couldn't find it. And, and there's, I don't think there's any like pure democratizing aspect of any format. There's still always complications there but i think the interesting thing is one way to indicate that there is something that's putting some power into people hands of the people with the format is how the industry reacts yeah. <laughs> and so the record industry you know that immediately freaked out about tapes the fact that people were going to be able to tape their albums control how they listen to their albums mix remix their albums remix songs you know tape songs off the radio all that kind of stuff much the way you saw how they reacted to napster later on which Absolutely. you know if, if if you want to question whether it was democratizing just see how they freaked out about that too <laughs> you know um so i think that aspect is definitely there there's the industry kind of gatekeepers if that's the right term are always trying to make it so that they have the power and the way they control the way that people find music how much they have to pay for it how much which way they listen to it and so these formats in those in that sense do really have a big impact when they're when they're offering the opportunity for people to change that and have a, have sort of a say in it their their own way um so in that sense yeah i think there are democratizing and social political aspects of all these things i don't think they're always intended I and mean, i think the great thing about that is that they they come from the people who use them rather than the people who make them i don't think the guy that made invented cassette tapes lou ottens was thinking this is going to change the world for you know this is going to be power to the people i'm sure it might have occurred to him he was a smart guy but i don't think that was his intention per se it was more just like wouldn't it be cool if you could take a real what people were using at the time real to real tapes that could tape music or could tape records or whatever and make it something that you could carry around that still sounded decent enough to use you know interestingly if uh, you know according to your book by the end of his life mr ottens was kind of decrying <laughs> yeah. the supposed resurgence uh -huh. and, and i doesn't he describe it as dangerous or something i can't remember but what did, what did you when you came upon that what did you think of that the guy who invented it's like this is everyone's interested in it now like what's the point like I, that was the vibe i got what did you make of that yeah yeah i mean i think he was basically at heart an engineer more than he was a yeah. you know a music guy or he didn't even expect tapes were going to be used for music at first he thought they weren't high quality enough thought they'd be just for voice recordings and and so i think he was basically like whatever's new and can make things better in whatever way either convenience or cheaper or sound better that's what he was always interested in so the minute he he and phillips figured out that they could make digital audio that was affordable on cds I don't think he, I think he immediately stopped caring about tapes at that point. I mean, I'm sure he still cared somewhat, but he had no kind of romantic connection to any of the things he invented. He just thought, I'm always inventing things. I'm always pushing things forward. And that's, and I, I think that that's, there's something kind of cool about the fact that he wasn't a proselytizer for it. It sort of uh, allowed the proselytization to come from the people who really used and figured out ways to use the format that he had never really intended. And he didn't, I don't think he really, look down per se on people who were still using them i think he thought it was a little silly like why would you when there's other better options out there from his perspective but i, I also get the sense that he i'm sure he was somewhat proud of that he just wasn't willing to admit it because he was this forward-thinking guy all the time <laughs> what do you what how would you characterize i know there's all sorts of different examples of this in your book but how would you characterize how the advent and use widespread use of the cassette tape actually impacted musicians in particular, we were talking mm -hmm. about democratization and access. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I actually have a fond memory of uh, the first interview I can remember doing was with my mother on a cassette uh-huh. tape. And <laughs> in retrospect, again, just taking it completely for granted that I could do that. It was for a grade three school project. And I just mm-hmm. asked her about her life and we we shared the tape recorder. I mean, arguably, that's how I got here. That's literally <laughs> how I, she used to call me my my media child because I used to watch a lot of television and was interested in all these sorts of things. But in terms mm-hmm. of musicians, can you characterize how you think the advent of the, uh, the compact cassette uh, actually mm-hmm. impacted musicians who are, you know, trying to create things and capture them as quickly as in, instinctually, I think, as possible? Can you speak to that? Sure, sure. I mean, it's interesting because there are definitely some parallels between your experience and a lot of like Lou Barlow, who you've talked to before, who one of your interviews was very helpful to me for the book, actually. So that was awesome. Thank um, you for thank you for quoting <laughs> that interview in your book. That was really, sure. uh, you know, it's weird. I'm making this little thing and I it's starting to show up in people's books and I'm like, wow, like That's it's good. it's very flattering. Yeah. So I just want to sorry That's to awesome. interject. I just want to thank you oh, no so problem. much. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, I was. It's funny because we, we talked about me moving here to Arizona. I was listening to that episode as we were driving out here. My son and I were driving out here and I almost pulled over when he, I was like, I got to remember that part because it was so perfect in terms of what I wanted him to talk about in my books. Oh, nice. That's <laughs> so lovely. That awesome. I can also thank you, Mark. You've been very supportive of the show generally and uh, yeah. publicly. So thank you for listening. And uh, I, it means a lot. So I really I'm sorry. Oh. Sorry, everyone. I didn't mean to interrupt Mark's flow there with the musician thing, but it's no. just a. Uh, it means a lot. So sorry, please continue about. Um, oh, cool. And I'll say really, I'll yeah. say really quickly. I mean, your, your show is completely inspiring. I, mean, I love it. And I love listening to it. I'm so psyched to be on it right now. And the, <laughs> the, the whatever little bit of podcasting I've done has definitely been influenced by the way you conduct your interviews and the way you talk about music and stuff. So oh, it's a that's huge inspiration. Really, me, so. really. I can't thank you enough for <laughs> saying that you're, cool. you're too kind. Awesome. Thank you, Mark. Yeah. Oh, oh thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So Lou's experience was kind of like yours, like his family, kind of made each other audio letters on tapes and they used to do little, you know, recordings to for each other. And he got fascinated with make putting his voice on tapes before he even knew he wanted to be a musician. But of course that really super influenced the way he went about music still goes about music, but it, it's sort of in the bigger picture in terms of artists and musician using cassette tapes, there were a lot of ways that, that, that helped them and change the course of so many different genres because number one, they could record on their own without having to pay for studio time, without having to put out the outlay of money that it takes. And also the connections it takes to get on a label or to have somebody promoting your music. They could just record it on a tape, dub it and pass it around to their friends or send it to pen pals in the back of magazines and things like that. So that was helpful. And then also, I mean, the big example that I like the most in the book, although a lot of great examples is hip hop, because hip hop really would not pretty much would not exist, at least not the way we know it without cassettes, because it was originally a DJ format before there were MCs, there were DJs and you only could hear their mixes at parties unless you happen to know someone who would tape the mix that they made. And, and then eventually the DJs figured out, I'm going to tape the mix and sell it. And, you know, Grandmaster Flash was making a living selling these tapes. Yeah. You know, so not only was it a sort of a way for the the music to get passed around and styles to influence DJs were influencing each other by hearing each other's tapes. It was a way to go about like they there wasn't really an idea that they could go to a record label and say, hey, can you put out one of my mixes so everybody can hear it or so that I can get more popular? I mean, it just wasn't a, a, a possibility. So this was a completely, you know, 
independent ecosystem really in a way of of making the music develop so by the time there was hip-hop on record like rapper's delight or whatever the the djs themselves were way beyond that because they had been trading tapes and and trading styles so much that the music was evolving like crazy because of it that's a fascinating example in your book because not only did some of these artists discover kind of the economic possibilities like you could because the tapes were so rare, you could sell one for 300 bucks or something like that. (laughs) Um, But then there was the personalization that would go on, shouting out Mm -hmm. questionable figures in the community so that the tape seemed (laughs) more personalized. And Uh that's a really fascinating aspect of how tapes became these communication tools in Mm -hmm. communities. Uh, One of the examples that actually stuck out for me of how musicians benefit from Tapes. I think you maybe just alluded to demos and and people recording themselves. But Lee Ronaldo becoming kind of a taper of his mm-hmm. own band, Sonic Youth. I think is maybe correct me if I'm wrong about this, but somebody maybe at Lee's behest or others decided they should record every Sonic Youth show and on, mm-hmm. and then listen back to them. I think on tour as they're going. Is that is that correct? Right. Yeah. 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 They were, they were doing, they were making their own tapes, really taping the sets themselves and then listening in the van on the way to the next date and thinking about, should we be playing this that way? Or should we, we, you know, playing different songs or all that kind of stuff. Their music was evolving because of that. You know? Yeah. So bands will often make demo tapes, demonstration mm-hmm. recordings <laughs> to just hear it back, like hear what they're, mm-hmm. what it sounds like in a somewhat more objective manner, I suppose. Like, sure, you're in the room mm-hmm. making the sound, but what did it actually right. sound like to others is is an interesting, weird, experiential thing that musicians go through of like, oh, shit, right. I didn't know that was happening. I didn't realize <laughs> right. that Lee did that because when I was mm-hmm. road man, when I did my first road managing stint 23 years ago, I was that guy. I would record, oh, I had a little tape player uh, and recorder that I brought with me ostensibly to document the trip along with, you know, a point and shoot camera. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I did that. I was the road manager and I documented the whole trip and I taped every show. And if the band were up That's for awesome. it, as we moved from city to city, I would play this sort of garbled, grainy sounding <laughs> thing, right? Mm-hmm. It didn't sound mm-hmm. great. It, was, it didn't no, sound no. amazing, but it was like a reference. So the notion that musicians could actually, before they piled into an expensive studio, could actually give themselves their own reference. Is there any way mm-hmm. to sort of underplay how significant that aspect <laughs> of the creative process has been for musicians? I don't think so. What do you think? No. Yeah, I don't think so either. I mean, it, it was sort of the first opportunity also for like bands could just pra- tape every rehearsal. Yeah. And listen back to it. I mean, it's hard to imagine, but before then you would have a rehearsal. And if, if, if like an improvised thing became something you wanted to make into a song, you'd have to hope you remembered what you played. Yeah. <laughs> because there's no other way to, before tapes, there was really no other way to record your, you know, something that, that kind of casual because who wants to spend a bunch of money on a reel to reel machine to tape all your practices? That's just going to be prohibitive and also not really that feasible technically. And so, yeah. So I think that was a, a huge, uh, thing for all, all all bands at the time i think and i think it also because they got so used to listening to themselves that way they i think some of them went into studios and were like eh, i don't want it this clear <laughs> i wanted to have some of that tape aesthetic you know that grit and grime and hiss and stuff because that's the kind of music i'm making my music sounds like tape hiss in a way you know even sonic youth i'm sure would have thought that at one point 
so I, I think it it, it it had this kind of neat double effect where it was making things convenient and, and easier and uh, giving them the ability to do this, but it was also sort of affecting the way they thought about music. And there's you can also extend that into the, the audience side. I mean, when I was in college, REM came to my college, I think three of the four years I was there, and immediately after they played – the, a bootleg of the show would circulate hmm. and I'd get a tape of it. And they were one of these bands that were always playing songs that were going to be on the next record. Yeah. So then the next record would come and I'd know a bunch of the songs and there's something so cool and personal about, like, I felt like a member of the REM club because of this, <laughs> you know, which really couldn't have happened otherwise before cassettes were around. But I, I felt like, wow, I really know REM. I knew these songs before the record came out only because of these cassettes that I had. Yeah. You know? I used to buy, I realize now that it was pretty dodgy, but you would, I would pay, I would go to like, <laughs> tape fairs and record fairs and mm-hmm. surely they would be selling bootlegs of Nirvana at the Reading Festival or whatever. So I have right. I have them all like and I probably <laughs> paid like 20 bucks for this sort of shoddy recording, but <laughs> right. I felt like so mm-hmm. connected and like you say yeah. I felt like I was part of an experience. I, well, I was obviously not part of the experience when it happened, but I felt part mm-hmm. of it all of a sudden and they would play new songs or they would experiment and th- mm-hmm. that's you would you could chart the evolution of a song before it got to a record. I just, right. again, I think we take these little platforms for granted. And I, uh, sorry, I read your book thinking I've really taken cassettes for granted. Um, like <laughs> I really took it for granted that I had access to this, that I would make people I had a crush on a tape, a mixtape. Mm-hmm. And I guess I just didn't think about <laughs> how lucky I was. Do you feel like, do you think like generationally, maybe we take, some of these formats for granted as they sort of ebb and flow in terms of their popularity? Oh, for sure. I mean, we, we, especially in the West, I think we have a really good capacity to memory whole stuff as soon as it's gone. And so we, we, we adjust to the new thing so quickly that we forget what we didn't have before. I mean, it's still, even though I experienced it, it still kind of boggles my mind to think before cassettes came along, I didn't listen to my, the music that I owned quote unquote outside of my house. I listened to the radio but that was pretty much it. Yeah. I wouldn't drive around listening to the music that I had picked. I wouldn't, you know, take it down the street or whatever. I might bring a record to a friend's house, but that's the extent of it. And that is completely bizarre to think about now. The idea that your, your music was only located in your house. I mean, how, I think if I told my kids that they wouldn't even begin to comprehend what I'm talking about. But you know. is there any chance that has relegated music to background noise? the same like you're absolutely correct like i had a walkman and i would Mm -hmm. walk around with it soundtrack by music all the time and Mm -hmm. now i feel like i was i had this conversation with um douglas mccombs somewhat recently Mm -hmm. when he was on the show we were talking i was telling him that i was listening to his album by reading a book while reading a book and he Mm -hmm. said i couldn't do that Uh, if i'm if i I can only do one of those at 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 once i can't do both things uh-huh. And as you may know, Mark, on the show, I often say to guests, like, I was listening to your album while I was making the kids breakfast, or I was I was listening <laughs> right. to your album while I was doing the dishes. Uh-huh. And I am now uh-huh. in this mindset where I grew up with a Walkman, so I just was so used to having music with me everywhere, and now uh-huh. it is with everyone everywhere, and it seems also like it's not taken seriously as, again, I uh-huh. might sound like an old man here. But like there is something to people sitting at home and just listening to a record. I don't mean an LP, but like maybe there was we focused in more on the mm-hmm. on the on the creative work by not being distracted by it's just it was just on while I was doing something else. 
Music has right. always been this way uh, for since yeah. I was since I've come up. I mean, it's always been portable, and mm-hmm. I never really thought about the implications of that. Do you think there are implications mm-hmm. of that? Am I overblowing this? That it's a no, sick- no. I think it's I think it's totally fair. I mean, I yeah. I think the the kind of great and fascinating thing about all these formats and all these changes is there's no there's no like completely positive or completely negative there's definitely things that you lose in every change like this and and are and are worth thinking about i mean you know and people question it right away when people are walking around with walkmans a lot of people are like that's a weird way to listen to music it's also a weird way to exist in the world you're shut, you're basically it's sort of like the equivalent of taking the music in your house and putting it on your head and saying this is what i'm doing now don't talk to me don't you know yeah. and i i don't think i think it's a little goofy to be super reactionary about that but i do think that there's a point to be made for that i mean it did kind of usher in this idea that you could kind of have your personal space everywhere which is a little odd well, what, for a society what, 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 what are these have. these these telephones and these airpods <laughs> and headphones like they're uh-huh. the walkman of uh-huh. now they're they're they are just yeah. the walkman but everyone ha- everyone seems to have one now and it uh-huh. does create you're absolutely correct. It it creates a, set, a mm-hmm. little bit of insularity. Oh, that person's mm-hmm. not even paying attention to the traffic. They're not paying attention to anything. I surely can't talk right. to them. Like it, it is kind of a don't <laughs> talk. I mean, I think, sorry, right. this was true of me as a kid too. If I was on a bus or something with my headphones mm-hmm. on, I'm guessing people wouldn't have tried to be like, Vish, hey, Vish, right. you know, what's going on? <laughs> it was sort of like, leave mm-hmm. me alone. Anyway, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying uh, yeah. society and civility are crumbling. Was the cassette tape a contributing factor? Can you speak to this? I I think it connected us and galvanized us, but it has led us Uh all to think that we should have all of our entertainment with us at all times on the tiny little screens and in lower fidelity quality (laughs) on some level. Uh Anyway, I don't know what it means, but I do think cassettes and Walkmans and portability is the – it is – that's ground zero for where we're all at consuming. Would you agree? Oh, oh, very much so. Yeah, yeah for sure. That's why it is kind of an interesting subject is that I don't think people associate cassettes with that big a kind of groundswell change, but they did really change a lot of the way we think about what our music collection is and what our music taste is and how it's an extension of our personality yeah. and all those kind of things. Yeah. You know, and, and I mean, again, it's, it's sort of cost benefit. Like I do think that there are some things that we've lost by not sitting down as often and just concentrating on music or by not even having like having your friends come over and put a record on that's that was pretty awesome and you can still do that but it's definitely less less frequent now at the same time you know i mean you and i wouldn't probably wouldn't be able to do as much as we do if we couldn't listen to music when we're making breakfast or or, you know we we, absolutely get a lot more in that way we experience a lot more and and we're you know i don't want to make it sound like we're better because of this but we're also we're attentive listeners in general we're doing it because we want to pay attention so we're not really letting it slip into the background so much it's more like our our day is the background and the music is the foreground well i do i do think that everybody does that yeah and i do think that sort of subconscious listening permeates my mind uh, like I don't, mm-hmm. I, I, as you can tell, as I sputter on here today, I don't have a lot of notes when I'm talking to people other than maybe the odd sure. lyrical fragment. Mm-hmm. And it forces my brain to be like, access your guest songs that stuck out to you, like access something. And I'm in the moment right. trying to do that. Uh-huh. And and, and, uh-huh. I, and I mean, conversely to what I was just saying, I know the words to entire Wu-Tang Clan albums because that was the tape <laughs> I left in the car mm-hmm that summer in 1994 or 1995 and i just Uh i was like no this is it this is the summer of Uh liquid swords or the summer of enter the wu-tang that is a a direct 
result of that portability. That technology's right. ability to be like, mm-hmm. what are there, I don't know about you, Mike. I I inherited my parents' car, but it used to just be tapes mm-hmm. everywhere, just tapes, and I would just yep. grab whatever. Oh, but, sure. but there were summers where I'm like, mm-hmm. I this is Wu Tang summer, and that uh-huh. has stuck with me. So. So yes, uh-huh. to your point, sometimes that portability leads to more concentrated listening. Even if you're driving and you're not fully attentive, you kind it's getting to it's getting in there. So I I'm I just uh-huh. want to contradict what I was saying earlier and suggest <laughs> <laughs> it might actually all this portability might be creating heightened awareness of the music in its own slow burning right. way. So I'll say yeah. I'll say that you know it's, it's there's the there's an irony to that that I just sort of noticed just recently is that, um, you know, tape players stopped being put into cars. And eventually now, like we bought a used Kia from like 2018 Kia. It doesn't have any ability to play any physical media. It's just you can plug your phone. Oh, in. no, there's no CD player. There's no tape player. And so if I forget my phone or if one of my kids wants to use my phone or whatever, I'm just subjected to the radio at that point, which the radio I love radio. But <laughs> it's funny that the physical format. Would, if there was a tape player or a CD player there, I'd have more freedom to listen to what I want to than this, than this thing that only accepts the high end digital phone, you know, the, the, what's considered the high, the most forward looking technology of listening to music. It, that's the only way you can listen to music in there. It's weird. Well, and again, I think this speaks to the status that actual music and physical media, it's just as a very low status in all of these. Yeah contemporary it's companies minds and it's really it's it's mm-hmm. vaguely classist it's weird i kept all my cds mm-hmm. and it is a very bizarre <laughs> situation and i don't yeah. meanwhile in your book you have people traveling all the way to syria because of their obsession right. with cassettes and they're collecting these <laughs> and they're discovering mm-hmm. music like this is a whole culture i didn't mm-hmm. really know about of people just Sorry, I don't want to. Can you explain and, and maybe summarize what I'm talking about? Sure. At this notion of people going sure. to basically, they become so obsessed with tape and tape culture that they go to mm. bazaars and they just ask for like the shittiest looking <laughs> tape, and then that's their sound. Like, what is going on? What's that meant? Can you explain that and what that mentality might be all about? Sure, sure, yeah. And a little bit of background there. So, so cassette culture in non-Western countries was, in, in a way, more impactful than it was in America and Canada and, and UK and things like that, because so much music got recorded on cassettes that wasn't getting recorded on any other format because of either the state media saying it's not appropriate or record labels not being willing to support it or whatever. So there, that, that's a rich, super big history. It's part of the cassette history that, you know, and a couple books, there's a book on cassette culture in North India by Peter Manuel. That's really good on that. There's a recent one by Andrew Simon on cassettes in Egypt. That's really good at, at about that culture. And, when I wanted to write about this, I'm like, well, I mean, those guys both lived in those countries in order to write those books. So my, my sort of only option was to, to kind of have this story told through the people who go over there and do find the cassettes. So, you know, and many of them have brought the music back here and released it in whatever ways they can with hopefully getting whatever approval they can or, or getting remuneration to the artists and things. So we've got sublime frequencies and awesome tapes from Africa, Sahel sounds. All the guys behind those labels are are definitely people who are obsessed with going up and digging up these cassettes from all these different countries. Who in the eighties and nineties, you could they were ubiquitous. You go out on the street and there'd be kiosks full of cassettes of people who you know only perform their music at weddings, like Omar Soliman, or yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. or people who only recorded it. Some people didn't even know you know it was bootlegged, like 
the, uh, Brian from Awesome Tapes from Africa has tracked down some people with tapes he's found in there. Like, I didn't know my music got released on tape, <laughs> which is pretty wild. But, <laughs> but anyway, in a lot of ways, it represents, you know, whole regional styles or whole kind of aesthetics that didn't get any other kind of release or, or popularity or, or publicity. And so it, the cassettes were sort of this weird living archive of music that, otherwise wouldn't be around and you you invoked weddings there and uh if mm-hmm. as i recall in your book like people would record the bands or the artists playing at the <laughs> wedding uh-huh. and bootleg uh-huh. that specific weddings recording is that correct <laughs> that's that's the impression i get yeah there would be there and and also the artists sometimes would use these as their kind of their calling cards you know they'd record themselves at the at the wedding and then at the wedding put, yeah, at the wedding, like and the, then put it out. Live with albums, their like, yeah. yeah. But that was sort of, or to get more wedding work, would be the way why they would make cassettes. But then other people got into the music and would, yeah, would bootleg it and pass it around. And yeah, it would be from actual specific weddings, <laughs> which is pretty wild. There's a certain level of desperation in in that <laughs> narrative, mm-hmm. right? It's it's mm-hmm. people, uh, the listening audience, so desperate to hear this kind of music. Mm-hmm. That they're buying someone else's wedding tape, which here would just seem I would I would argue that would seem strange. It if you were like, hey, really the, the remember the band that played your wedding? Uh they did all those cover songs? That yeah. was recorded and it's circulating. It's a huge hit. I'd be like, What? Well, should, how did that work? Like I didn't own the songs, but that's weird. So like there's yeah. something going on culturally there. Uh-huh. But also maybe some level of um it's savviness, but maybe some level of desperation. On behalf mm-hmm. of the artists as well, like I, while I'm playing, I might as well, I'll record this, or can you record this for me, and we'll sell right. it. Mm-hmm. Am I right? Is there a, like the tape is I like the cassette is like a lifeline for everyone involved in that? In that, it circle did, yeah, outside. really. I think that's yeah. fair to say, yeah, for sure. I mean, like I said, there's there's sort of mixed uses here. Some of them are really strictly just using them as demos to get more wedding work, but some of them were like, this is my only kind of expression of my art at this point is when i perform these songs at weddings and so the only way to kind of pass around and and have sort of any kind of artistic career with what i'm doing is to sell tapes of what i've done at weddings which is yeah it's funny before you mentioned that i I guess because i'm so familiar with omar soliman and all and uh artists of his ilk that i didn't i don't think i've ever really questioned that's a really interesting question the fact that if that happened over here you'd be like what (laughs) it would be strange even back in the 80s yeah it would be very strange You'd be buying a cassette. It would be like Bill and Marion's wedding, 2003. And you're like, what? That seems like their thing. Why should I? Anyway, that's a, that's a yeah, and this, ba- this band that only plays weddings had a particularly hot set that night. And we need to check. <laughs> I want to ask you about your own uh, earliest interactions with um, cassettes, both as uh, uh, someone who would purchase them and also as someone mm-hmm. who discovered that you could buy a blank tape and do what you wanted to with it, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um can you speak to those things? Do you have any uh, sense memories of your early interactions with cassettes, both, like I say, like official things and then mm-hmm. that recognition, like, wait a minute, I, if I have a blank tape, I could I could tape whatever I want. Can you speak to those things? Right. Sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, I, so I grew up in the, I'm about 10 years older than you, so I grew up sort of 70s and 80s. And 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, the first, my first interactions with tapes were, I think, just having a little handheld cassette player and holding it up to my clock radio and taping like Casey Kasem top 40 and then try to tape over the songs I didn't like with the songs I did like to kind of like, <laughs> because it was a time where, you know, sort of the novelty ish songs were the most interesting things like Gary Newman or Devo, yeah. where they would, they would manage their way into the charts. And so that was some, taping those and listening to those over and over again was sort of the way I figured out there was weirder music to be had than just what's in, you know, the, the things everybody's heard of getting a tape player in my car was a huge thing, especially cause that pretty much coincided with the first time I could drive. Like when I was able to drive myself to high school, I, I after I got a used car, the first thing I saved up for was a tape deck to put in there and uh, i bought a lot of pre-recorded cassettes because of that just because it was so much easier to listen to them in the car that way and also because at the time i didn't really it never occurred to me that they didn't sound any i could hear the music that's all i cared about yeah yeah yeah. so so it was awesome to have them in the car one of my really most distinct memories was i guess either double tape decks that you could dub tape to tape either didn't exist yet or were too expensive i i just remember when i was a kid not being able to get something like that but i did have like a a stereo that had the record player and the tape player all in it and it had some rcas out rca out things that you could put a cord in and i knew just you know the most rudimentary things about that kind of thing that i figured well if i could somehow find another tape deck that has these same plugs maybe i could and i went and bought at a at somebody's yard sale this old this relatively old cassette player and put and hooked it up to mine and the first thing i did was tape it to tape a tape to another tape and it worked i couldn't believe it i showed it to some of my friends and then suddenly like there were this a bunch of people in my school who were like he can make a tape <laughs> for you yeah. of your own of another tape and I'm, I almost remember feeling like I'd, I had cracked a code of some sort, you know, even though probably within a few, not a year or maybe even months of me doing that, there were doubling tape, double tape decks that were easily accessible. But it was still this kind of neat discovery to make. It, it added to this. The whole thing just felt so kind of both DIY and somewhat illicit, like probably somebody doesn't want me to be doing this, which made it more fun. What, what was the slogan? Home taping is killing music that emerged in the... <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> in the 60s yeah. or 70s? I can't remember when it came out. That some... uh, Yeah, it's, I think it started in the late 60s. Yeah. Um, They tried all different ver- versions of the kind of trying to scare people out of using tapes that way or shame them into because they really had no other recourse. I mean, they tried a lot of different things, but nothing ever stuck. Earlier, I was talking about how um, the telephone uh, and uh, ear pods and whatnot mm-hmm. is the logical extension of the more, I don't know, pioneering Walkman headphones sort of thing. Mm-hmm. You had the exact same impulse as a kid that I ended up having, uh-huh. which was I really like this. I listen to the radio incessantly. And when you listen to the any kind of radio college, even well, at that time it would have been probably whatever AM FM radio for me. Mm-hmm. They play the same. The song you like is going to get played a few times a day, and right. eventually, when you figure out my my parents had a, a, a tape deck where you put a tape in, you have the radio going, you press record, it's going to grab the radio signal. You record the, what's on the radio. What about the notion that cassettes are the maybe earliest onset of the on demand? mindset i'm not going to wait for a song to come my way i'm Mm -hmm. going to grab it now and Mm -hmm. play it whenever i want do you think there's something again in in terms of where we're at now (laughs) in terms of everything you want to watch or see or listen to whatever you're not waiting for commercials you're not waiting for it to be on the broadcast schedule you just can say i want to hear this song phone Mm -hmm. play me the song that created a little bit of a monster 
I wonder yeah. a little bit. Like the <laughs> fact that I, as a kid, was like, "Yeah, I'm not waiting through all. I'm gonna if they're playing uh, Los Lobos La Bamba, I'm mm-hmm. recording it now because I really like this mm-hmm. version of La Bamba, and I don't uh-huh. know who Richie Valens is. Whatever, and I'm gonna record mm-hmm. it, and I'm just gonna listen to whatever I want. Do you think? Do you think oh, it yeah. did something to us? It did, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, 100 percent. Yeah, yeah totally, yeah. totally. I mean, that's where that all started. On the concept of on-demand music-wise, certainly wasn't there before cassettes, and it certainly was ubiquitous afterwards. So I think you can definitely both credit and blame the cassette for that whole thing. I mean, <laughs> does it make it, did it make us more impatient, or like I, 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 I you know, I, I'm raising two kids in this in this mm-hmm. landscape where they're just if something's not working. You know, that they're used to working. Uh It's just the end Uh of the world. They don't have this notion of like, (laughs) yeah, sometimes things don't work and or you have to wait for something to happen. You know, Uh like they're just like, why can't we do that now? So Uh I I guess I just I wonder if I was impatient as a radio taper. (laughs) Like, I'm not going to wait. I'm just going to grab it. But there's a control Uh thing, too, with the cassette, I guess, maybe. Right. Is that is that fair? Yeah. And I, I think the, the, yeah, the downside of it is that maybe it did make us all more impatient and a little bit more entitled to feel like we should get what we want whenever we want, which I, I don't love that about streaming. I think this something's lost in streaming. The fact that you just got everything available to you all the time is not necessarily a fully positive thing. The, yeah. the flip side of the positivity is the control we were taking away was away from corporate radio stations, corporate record companies who otherwise were dictating when we're going to hear, you know, I mean, part of it is also too not just wanting to hear that song that before they, you know, not having to wait for it again. It's also wanting to hear a bunch of different music rather than hearing the same song over and over like radio would do. And that was because radio had figured out we're going to make the most money if we're repetitive as hell, <laughs> you know, and that's fine if they're going to make the most money. But I, that's not what I want out of music. I don't want to benefit the radio station. I want to hear the music I want to hear, you know, outside of these people who are telling me what is popular. So. Yeah, that aspect of it, there the independence of it, and the fact that that it was wrestling some control away from the companies is the is the positive aspect. But it does come with this sort of negative thing that we we get a little too entitled because I I, I would like to feel entitled around around corporations because I, I you know I'm not a big fan. I don't want to feel entitled to an artist's work. That's not necessarily a good thing. Well, radio is an I'm an, I uh, kind of came up in radio. I'm no longer in the industry. Uh, mm-hmm. as of very recently and mm-hmm. I worry about it a little bit and mm-hmm. uh, like I mean I'm not sorry I'm not actively worried about it <laughs> I was having trouble trying to figure out who cared about this medium this is right. the most democratic thing we have in terms of a communication signal ideally mm-hmm. and, and like you say they, they're changing the cars I feel like wasn't there legislation yeah. like there's not even AM radio in new new model cars anymore i have heard about that yeah i've never seen that but i have heard about that i've heard of it too yeah i think it's newer models they're just getting rid of i believe it's specifically am radio so they're cutting off this fully democratic like anyone can access this content kind of uh platform i assume Mm -hmm. fm radio is gonna and you know i know the industry i know that it's sort of like hard to work in these industries Mm -hmm. they're always like every media industry right there's mergers and acquisitions and people lose their job but it does often speak to whether or not people care anymore right so i don't know exactly where i'm going with this but i am really fixated (laughs) on from your book the notion that particularly those people uh, like you said outside the western hemisphere how important these tapes are as a communication tool and whether or not we are with each platform and or each thing we adopt 
slowly killing some equity. Some, some. I mean, sorry, right. some egalitarian platform that anyone can mm-hmm. access. And so, mm-hmm. on the one hand, I'm really heartened that tapes have a little bit of a audience now. But it does it worry you at all that it's not this very accessible, affordable um, medium for artists, for labels, and for listeners? Like, does it worry you, given the trends we've seen and the cycles we've seen, that it's not as popular as it once was? Let's let's put it that way. Yeah, I mean, sure. I definitely there. There are definitely things that you always sort of worry about and wonder what you've lost when things decline in any in any way. The things that had 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 value beyond just like economic value when they decline. Yeah, I do. I do wish that more people were interested in cassettes and buying cassettes. And I do. I do think that there's something not so great about the fact that it's it's very very niche. Yeah. Um, the flip side is, you know, it, it's sort of a shock that it exists at all still. So <laughs> there's the positivity of the fact that it's still happening. Um, and I think the cool thing about it is that despite the fact that we've lost it sort of as a mass medium, what's what's held on to it is mostly people who are using it for the value it always had yeah. and for the, the reasons that it was good. Even though there are some major labels still putting out cassettes, which is, I think, a little ridiculous. But, <laughs> but you know, if it keeps the dupl- duplicators in business, that's great. I think we're so fractured. Doesn't it feel like we're so fractured that everything is kind of niche? Like, <laughs> yeah, I-, I don't know how to explain true. it. Like, I'm currently rewatching Better Call Saul for like, uh, uh-huh. I don't know how many times I've been through this series. Like, I'm finally back into the uh-huh. when I have time. But I'll talk to people like, oh, I never saw it. I'm like, how could you? This is like the greatest show I've ever seen. Like, are you crazy? Like all the multi layers and the temporal yeah. shifts, and how do how do they do this? Uh-huh. Like, oh, I don't, I don't, I don't have time. I don't know if anything <laughs> is super popular anymore. Does that make sense? Right. right. No, it does make sense, and I mean, I think there's some kind of cool things about that. I mean, I think mass media has a lot of bad tendencies, and and, and whether they're side effects or intentions of it, you know, it 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 gets pitch to the lowest common denominator it the, the, the creative decisions get dictated by what what will offend the least amount of people all those kind of things so there's there are good things that everything's niche i think because it gives them more freedom to be what they are rather than try to make them for because not everything is not for everybody and i, I think that's that's fine yeah. and also we find out once something is considered that it could be for everybody it's mostly just exploited for how much money it can make so yeah. there, there's good things about things being niche but you know we we also were lucky enough to grow up in a time where we felt like we were sharing some things that everybody you know a shared language around like we all knew who michael jackson was or yeah. whatever yeah you know and that and that's there's good thing. There's cool things about that. I mean, that, that had a lot to do with how we approach music. And I think it is weird that, you know, like my kids only know about like maybe 10 second snippets of songs they hear on TikTok or whatever yeah. is their experience of music. And they don't even know who the artist is necessarily. And it's all kind of weird, but you know, I'm sure every, every generation has trouble con- understanding what the other gen- new generation is doing. And then it works out in some ways, hopefully. So. I don't yeah. know, I've rambled a little bit there. No, no, you're on the right show for rambling. Didn't believe you, me. Um, <laughs> no, I appreciate that, and I and I think it's mm-hmm. astute. Um, we've alluded to various uh, sort of aspects of this book uh, on some level. Uh, different different chapters have been invoked. Mm-hmm. As a catch-all, uh, in your research for this book, as you were finalizing chapters, do you have any sense recall of like things that you were particularly surprised by or excited by even i know that when mm-hmm. you're engaged in a project like this you stumble sometimes you just stumble upon a narrative thread and you're like holy mm-hmm. shit 
and then you're so satisfied. <laughs> you're so satisfied that uh-huh. you you got to that. It feels magical. Did you have moments right. like that in particular, or the, the, are there moments like that that stick out for you in this book? Yeah, yeah. There's definitely a few. I mean, one that always comes to mind is is the go- aspect of GoGo and how much it used tapes. I grew up in D.C. I knew about GoGo. I had no clue that there was this tape network that was basically sustaining the whole thing. Yeah. And and beyond just trading tapes, I mean, they had a, a a sort of an ecosystem where they actually had stores that you could go and buy bands, shows, have them dubbed on cassette for you, and they called them PA tapes. And get it, so getting into that was really interesting, and I, ha- I did not know how – crucial tapes had been to go-go even though i knew about go-go so that that was really cool i think yeah. with a lot of the stories of of both bootlegging and digging for tapes around the world there's just all sorts of neat stories that i that i had no idea that i wouldn't have found out about if i hadn't been lucky enough to research this book i mean uh all the different i mean like the the grateful dead subculture which is very well known about. I mean, everybody knows about dead tapers and deadheads. And I still learned a lot more than I thought I would digging into that, just about the way people went about it, how much people did it, how social it became, how much it became a way that people connected more, even more so maybe than going to the shows was trading the tapes was just such a social connection for so many people. Yeah. And the fact that I really found it fascinating and spoiler alert for those who haven't read the book, that the band initially resisted the notion mm-hmm. that people would be taping it and then mm-hmm. pretty much couldn't have adopted it more like designated right. areas and mm-hmm. for people to bring in their equipment. So they weren't, uh, you know, viewed as scofflaws by security. Um, <laughs> right. I don't know if there's a sort of modern parallel to that, mm-hmm. but they really were pioneers in terms of realizing mm-hmm. that people sharing the tapes actually was a, I'm sorry, I don't think this was articulated as, as such in your book, mm-hmm. but I think at some point someone in the in the band or the organization of the band realized it was a savvy marketing move. For sure, yeah. Is that fair? Oh, Am definitely. I being... Oh, okay. yeah, definitely. I mean, there, there's there, I do have some quotes from them that I found that basically sort of... Maybe don't say it explicitly, but pretty much implicitly. Like, what our two options here are being cops about this or not. And, yeah. you know, <laughs> smartly, they that's not what they wanted to be. And it, it dovetailed really well with the fact that this was just going to help them anyway. But especially when they had that gap when when they weren't playing for a while, people just traded tapes and they actually got more fans <laughs> during their hiatus than they had before they stopped. Yeah. Was that attributed to Mickey Hart? Is that who said yeah. that? I can't mm-hmm. remember. Yeah. OK. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the band had this recognition of what was going on. And if you look at their trajectory, like, I can't keep track of it. I, every few years, the dead or the dead and company stop playing, announce mm-hmm. they're going to play a final show. <laughs> right. Sorry if I sound cynical, but then they keep, they don't seem to do it. Or like some yeah. of them go to, okay, we're done this. We're going to do a, a spinoff. And then mm-hmm. everyone else is like, oh, I want to be part of this. Spin- anyway, I'm, I'm being very cynical, but, but <laughs> that, <laughs> ta- but that tape culture. Mm-hmm. is probably why when they do these like final tours it's not a club mm-hmm. they're playing baseball stadiums in major cities <laughs> right. like it's if you see uh-huh. the footage you're like holy shit <laughs> yeah. how is this band this popular uh-huh. in america still yeah i don't know i would attribute it a lot to what you talk about in this book this fact that they created around the cassette in particular mm-hmm. a social a true social network mm-hmm. among their fans who were encouraged to trade tapes, become friends with each other. Right. You can be as cynical as you want. Mm-hmm. That's quite interesting, even if it's a business-savvy yeah. move. But 
it seems to assist, have sustained interest in this band who I barely have I but the last time they had a big song in the charts was like 1989 <laughs> right right yeah oh yeah anyway yeah. i yeah. it's a testament to i think this medium mm-hmm. maybe yeah i no, know I, sorry i i should i should say that and you acknowledge it people started to go digital with their trade tape sure. tape trading right uh-huh. mm-hmm. but but it emanates from the tape it does and you've got oh, these people in this book creating these like exhibits of their of every every concert they they can find like these artists like creating these like beautiful I don't know it's just uh-huh. sorry it's just uh-huh. it's very fascinating I again <laughs> I feel like an ass for taking it for granted but uh-huh. I'm also old enough to see the cycles we go through where sure certain platforms are in vogue and then they're not uh-huh. in vogue or right. they get over they get co opted so uh-huh. given your knowledge of such cycles mark i hate to put you on the spot and ask you for grand predictions <laughs> but uh ba- and you know i've i've watched you on twitter engaging with this bizarre situation happening with bandcamp uh-huh. um, and as they are absorbed by yet another party that is probably uh-huh. going to alter the business model do you have predictions about, given where we're at right now, whether it's with cassettes, records, digital streaming, whatever, do you have a sense of what's probably coming next? Like, I've, I keep seeing articles like, CDs are back right. every couple of months. And, and I see yeah. the same, you know, by the time of the end, the end of the book, you, you get uh, sort of tape experts saying, oh, these fucking media companies keep saying the resurgence of tapes it's so stupid like they never went anywhere sorry i'm not going to ask you to do that what do you think is going to happen next in terms of how we consume music and what what might get uh you know pop up as being like the thing to use so to speak right right yeah that's interesting i mean you know i I think you and i probably share this the the first thing i think of when i try to think of what's going to happen next is i i expect the worst (laughs) (laughs) the past few years have have made it that even more likely to that you'd expect the worst you can sort of imagine that everything's just going to be sucked up by people who don't care that much about music and tech people or whatever. And, and so it's hard to be super optimistic about it, but I do think that, and the cassette is a symbol of this, that the, the kind of outside cultures that take advantage of things in a DIY way and do it outside of, of anybody like giving them a lot of money for it or giving them a lot of publicity or approval, that's always going to exist in some form. So hopefully there will be new ways to do that. I mean, when the internet first came along, as you mentioned, like when, when people were trading digital files of the Grateful Dead or Fish or whoever, there was a really rich culture of people using the internet for this that was not, no one came, no like VC came in and said, I'm going to make a platform for you guys to trade. They were just doing it in whatever ways they could find that, you know, and then once it gets bigger, it gets kind of sucked up, unfortunately. But I think there's always going to be room for that kind of thing to happen. How it'll manifest. That is a, always a tough thing yeah. to imagine. I mean, you know, the, for a while there's uh, tapes in other countries outside of the West got replaced by uh like sim cards you know yeah 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 people would trade would trade music on sim cards which is sort of hard to imagine ever happening here so something like that you know what which with whatever technology we have next in terms of our communication someone's going to figure out some way to sort of hacks the wrong word and to sort of a techie word but to kind of utilize it in ways people didn't intend it to because ultimately the cassette was not necessarily intended to be what it became I think that's the the beauty of of both kind of communities who are based around music fandom and artists themselves is they're always finding ways 
to take advantage of formats in, in ways that other people did not intend them for at all. In fact, in fact, probably don't want them to happen. I think that'll always be around. So that's kind of a vague prediction. But. <laughs> it is It is funny. The compact cassette tape is invented uh, for whatever purpose it, it's invented for. And sooner rather than later, uh, people fig- figured out ways that they could bogart music. And, 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 <laughs> right. and so the music industry tends to go after the consumer not the mm-hmm. creator of the platform right. that actually get, like not going after actually sorry that's not exactly true were there not levies on blank tapes and things and uh, right there, there was were, kind of a yeah there yeah. was a conflict between the record makers the music industry and the tape makers in some senses for sure like they, so, they, they were kind of <laughs> which is weird because so, you think of them as all one thing you know yeah but music <laughs> itself or creativity like movies films uh, they're going to exist in some right. way, I know. I, like we're both pretty cynical people. Let's face it, Mark. But I think we <laughs> yes. can optimistically suggest, and that's the only way I can look at these things. As I see venues mm-hmm. closing and artists struggling to make uh, money with streaming services, is they're like, "But mm-hmm. I'm going to keep doing it, and right. I'll, I'll play house shows if I have to, and mm-hmm. I'll only sell my music on." Well, for for now, we'll say Bandcamp. <laughs> that's the only thing I right. can think of to do. So there's mm-hmm. a weird perseverance in creative compulsion mm-hmm. that means these cycles are going to continue and you and I are going to be overjoyed by certain developments and infuriated by the same sorts of developments <laughs> over and over right. and over again uh-huh. that's all I got in terms of optimism is that yeah. people I, seem I, to I, <laughs> I would add that there, the, the, at least here I'm not sure how much this is happening in Canada but at least here there's reason for optimism in the way so many people are unionizing in so many different fields yeah. and there's a band camp, band camp union which is hopefully going to help uh, ameliorate I guess that's what ameliorate or alleviate any big damage that might happen from this latest sale and also ultimately I hope that maybe and this may be way too optimistic but that whole kind of union drive and pers- and and the tendency toward people wanting to unionize will also eventually translate into people wanting to sort of own the means of production. Yeah. <laughs> For you know, maybe, maybe band camps can be started by, by bands and artists. I mean, it's not easy. Someone has to step up and take a lot of time and, and probably a lot of money, but hopefully we could start to see more, you know, worker owned versions of band camp where we're not, they're not subjected to the whims of, Oh, Hey, I'm just going to sell this to somebody who doesn't give a crap about music. Yeah. Well, it's it's a like I say that is a a hopeful point of view, and I hope you're correct. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I hope so too. <laughs> this book is great. Uh, can you tell folks uh, first of all where they can learn more about uh, High Bias, the distorted history of the cassette tape? Uh, and also, I know speaking of Bandcamp, I feel like you created mm-hmm. uh, a little product to go along with the book. I did. Can you talk about those I things? Sure. So, so sort of the, the bigger picture thing is it's available wherever you buy books and it's on University of North Carolina Press. You can get it from them or from all the online booksellers and stuff. But I also do have a Bandcamp page where you can buy the book from me and I'll sign it for you. And also I, I made a, a cassette release of my own called High Bias Music from the Book, which in my last chapter, I talk about current tape labels that I find interesting and significant. And I reached out to a lot of them and they each, 12 of them gave me 
tracks from their catalog and so it's a compilation of some of these new tape labels and artists who are who are recording on tape uh and so you could buy those together you could just get the tape you could even download you just buy the digital version of the tape if you want although i think the tape is cool because it's got the same exact cover as the book just a little bit different writing on it and it looks kind of like a mini version of the book um nice. so yeah so high highbiasbook.bandcamp.com is where all that is Okay, cool. And if people want to follow you and keep tabs on your uh, potential uh, live appearances for the book and whatnot, mm-hmm. uh, where would you like to send them? I'm probably the go to uncpress.org and look at their blog. That's where they they list all my events. I'll also be you know putting them out on my social media on Instagram and Twitter, which I I go go as at narcissist, so like narcissist with an M instead of an N. <laughs> uh, but uh, but I, who knows how long any of us will be on all those platforms? So those aren't necessarily most reliable. It's probably worth going to uncpress.org to find the most reliable information about where I'll be. I'm going to be on the East Coast in a couple of weeks doing some events, so you'll find okay. that information there. It's true. As we're speaking, uh, those platforms <laughs> exist. But by the time people hear this, who knows? Who knows if that's actually yeah, the case? Well, exactly. as I as I say, it's a really compelling and remarkable book, and it oh, just flooded me with um, so many feelings and memories. And I, that's like great. I say, I maybe alluded to earlier, I'm a little detached from this medium. I tell you what, I'm going to figure out a way to get myself. A double tape deck. I need. I'm going to go all out. And I, I, I was looking into mm-hmm. it once so when we first moved, but I just never did anything about it. But mm-hmm. you got me convinced. I need to start listening to my at least my old mixtapes and the gifts I received from Ooh. people in my past who were like. And I didn't. You know, I'm so stupid. I didn't realize how nice people were being. I just, I, I just was like, oh, thanks a lot. And I realized, oh, and then you listen now. You're like, oh, a lot of cutesy songs on this thing. I should have been paying more attention. I feel like an asshole. So anyway, all this to say, I need to. Uh, revisit my past a little bit and and, and i'm going to order your mm-hmm. tape I, I i'm curious about this as oh, well great. so well i've made it i've made i've made a habit of going to good goodwill which is our the the, the kind of the thrift the thrift store in our in america and every time i see a double tape deck i usually grab it if it's less than 20 bucks so i have a couple extras i'm happy to send you one. oh really <laughs> well <laughs> yeah. i have, we have if you're really serious about it i'd be happy to do that we have a value <laughs> village which is a, an equivalent sort of thrift oh, cool. uh, thrift chain yep. mm-hmm. and we have a goodwill mm-hmm. in uh, edmonton so i cool. will that's a good cool. call. Maybe I'll go there uh, as opposed <laughs> to a hi-fi audio store uh, and, and pick one yeah, up. The, the, the old ones still work great. Yeah. Or maybe I should get my parents. Anyway, this is none of anyone's concern. I'll figure this out. Mark, uh, <laughs> right, right. Mark, it's, uh, it's it was really nice to connect. I don't think we've ever actually spoken. So thank you for this time. Yeah. And I hope you enjoyed yourself. Mm-hmm. And as I always say, I wish oh, you the 100%. best luck in the future. And I hope we talk soon. Oh, thanks so much. Yeah, no, I really had a great time. When I, when, one of the things I was thinking of when the book started to come out is like, if there's any way I can talk to you about it, that would be one of my dreams. So I'm really happy that we were able to do that. Oh, that's so nice and meaningful. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Very lovely to speak with Mark Masters. Thank you again, Mark, for being on this, the 813th episode of Creative Control, which is part of the Entertainment One Podcast Network and is available just about wherever you get your podcasts. If you can't find an episode that you've heard about and you're looking for it, or if you want to learn more about me and sign up for my monthly newsletter, which I'm several months behind on, I'm sorry, please visit vishkana.com. You can also like Creative Control on Facebook or follow the show on things like Twitter at Vish Creative, or you can follow me on uh, Twitter and on Instagram at Vishkana. I'm also on Blue Sky and Threads and Mastodon and Hive, I think, still. I'm on all the things that emerged in recent months, and uh, I use them as sparingly as I can. But if you want to find me on, I have, if I'm on Facebook, you can find me on things and follow me or ask to follow me or whatever it takes. Thank you. I, I'll do the same. Also, please visit uh, patreon.com slash creative control to make a flexible monthly donation to support the work that goes on with this podcast with your dollars. Six dollars American or more a month grants you access to exclusive content and you get episodes earlier than everybody else. And if you're interested in receiving a creative control t-shirt uh, for your generosity, I will send you one. Just message me on Patreon. We'll figure out your size and the color and design you like. And if we if I've got them in stock, you get one. That's how it works. So again, thanks for supporting this show on Patreon. Speaking of thanks, I want to thank Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee, respectively, in Guelph, Ontario, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, Ontario, each independent businesses who offer in-kind support for this show. I can't thank them enough. also want to thank Jim Guthrie. He uh, has provided some music for me to use for this show, and you can learn more about Jim and his amazing catalog of song at jimguthrie.org. And I want to thank uh, Mark Masters for being on this show and to you for listening to our conversation. I hope you will check out his book, High Bias. It is uh, amazing and fascinating. I hope you were enthralled and uh, interested and intrigued by our conversation about it, and that compels you to pick up the book. It's really something else. And uh, I was just, as I said to Mark there, uh, it's nice for us to finally connect after uh, having this uh, little bit of long-distance affection for one another. So thank you, Mark. Thank you all for listening to this. I hope you're well. I hope you'll subscribe to this podcast or follow it and uh, support the show and tell your friends about it. And that's all I got. I will talk to you soon. Be well. Bye for now. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.